Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Well, Dan, one of the most onerous legal restrictions on religious liberty in any nation of the world, I think, has got to go to Pakistan with its blasphemy laws. And in a very notorious case, a young Christian woman has been sentenced to be executed. Uh, The appeal is still pending. And here to talk about the case of Asya Bibi, is Julia Bicknell, executive editor of World Watch Monitor on the web at worldwatchmonitor.org, coming to us all the way from London, England. Julia, thank you so much for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Good to be with you. Thank you. So I know many of our listeners have followed the story. We've done prior radio shows about Asya Bibi's story. But to fill us in on what happened and and how she came to be arrested and convicted of blasphemy. Well, she was a a worker in the agricultural fields in Punjab, in Pakistan. And it was a hot summer's day, and she was working with some other women. And she offered to go and get some water for them to drink. And they said that they couldn't touch the water because it was haram, because she's a Christian and then they're forbidden to take any food or drink from the hands of a Christian because she was also deemed to be untouchable because uh, some of your listeners might know um, Pakistan was part of the Indian colonial system uh, when the British ruled it and there was this whole caste system and unfortunately Christians Uh, when Pakistan split off and became independent in 1947, um, they uh, were part of the lower caste in Pakistan. So deemed untouchable, she wasn't allowed to give them, or they refused to take the water from her. So apparently she got into a a chat with these two women, and um, she's alleged to have essentially blasphemed against the Prophet Muhammad. And so they then went and complained, and cutting a long story short, she was accused of blasphemy and she was found guilty in a court, and that was back in 2010. What um, what can you tell us about what she allegedly said that was blasphemous? Well, the uh, court record uh, in front of me, but the, the strange thing about this case is that um, when she was tried, her lawyer couldn't even repeat what she's alleged to have said because to do that as her lawyer, he was risking then being charged with blasphemy himself. So it's actually quite difficult to say exactly what she said. But, um, I mean, if you really want me, I can I can look at the document, but I'd, I'd have to check it out. I've got it on my screen. Well, that's okay. I'm, I'm curious to know then, um, did anyone actually, I mean, I just, I just came off of a three week trial. I've been sitting in court listening to testimony for, you know, day after day after day. And, you know, how precise, who said what to whom and what's hearsay, et cetera. And, um, you know, I'm so under this interesting legal system, did anybody actually repeat in court and testify this is what she said that was supposed to be blasphemous? 
No, they didn't, because, as I said, that in itself would be blasphemy, to repeat the words that she said. But they are written down, in, as I said, in a court document, but that was only when it went to appeal, um, and nobody actually knows. And the interesting thing is that although the sisters, there were meant to be witnesses to what the, these two sisters actually said to her in the conversation, nobody was there at the time. And so there was no other independent witness. So it was essentially their word against hers. She said that she had never said any of these things that she was quoted to have said. And the other complication is that the sisters uh, went to a local mullah and he then brought her before or she was brought before a meeting in the community some days later, which she she was said to have confessed to having said these things. But of course, uh, the trial evidence found that actually this meeting was several days later and she could have, uh, you know, been very, very fearful of the local community and what they might do to her. So she may have confessed without, you know, having actually said it because of the fear of the community pressure and the mob. Sure. So she was convicted six years ago in 2010. She's been in prison for six years. That's right. She's actually now spent seven years in prison because she was actually arrested as soon as as soon as the invest what they call in Pakistan the first investigation report was entered by the police. She was arrested and put in put in jail. She'd been in jail for seven years now, from the summer of two thousand and nine. And I gather that the um, the highest court in Pakistan is um, imminently going to make a final decision about whether whether she should be executed or not. Well, they were due to have made that decision last week. So she took her appeal through the Lahore High Court, which is the highest court in the Punjab, the province that she lived uh, lived in. And then they put it through to the Supreme Court in Islamabad, the capital. And last uh, Monday, the 13th of October, due to have her final appeal heard. And what happened there was um, it was due to be heard by three judges, at the Supreme Court, Appeal Court, and uh, one of the three judges turned up and said, I can't take part in this appeal hearing now because I was one of the judges in the Islamabad High Court uh, that judged the case of the man, it gets very complicated, the man who murdered the governor of Punjab. Now, the man who murdered the governor of Punjab was a man called Mumtaz Khadri. And he was the bodyguard to the governor of the Punjab, whose name was Salman Tasir. Salman Tasir was an incredibly senior politician, one of the you know top handful of politicians in the country. He tried to speak out on Asya Bibi's behalf, and he went to visit her in prison, and he he asked her to apply for a presidential pardon. And because of that, his own bodyguard, this man called Mumtaz Kadri, actually then assassinated him. Instead of protecting him, he actually killed his own boss, as it were. Now, this judge, coming back to Asya's appeal last uh, 13th of October, uh, the judge said because he'd been involved in hearing the case against Mumtaz Kadri, uh, he couldn't, in all conscience, take part in this hearing of Asya Bibi because he'd been involved in the previous case and it was linked to her case. Now, there have been some people that have said that actually he had no legal grounds, the judge had no legal grounds to refuse to be one of the three judges hearing her appeal. Uh, and a lot of people think that he was 
essentially trying to get out of it, you might say. Well, now there's been an, there's been if I can just one other thing, there's been another twist today, which is that same judge has now resigned from his uh, role as a judge because completely independently of this case, apparently, he's actually been accused of uh, corrupt hiring practices while he was the judge. So he's now under a cloud. He's actually resigned his position as the judge. So um, it's all looking very kind of um, almost a murky. The fact that he refused to hear her case, he must have been aware that there was pressure and accusations against him. And he's now had to resign because of the public uh, spotlight on his apparent, uh, the fact that he apparently hired in a corrupt way while he was a judge. Well, I, I would agree, at least from an American point of view, uh, his prior handling of the case would not have been cause to recuse himself from this one. But I think our listeners should be reminded that uh, the assassination of the governor, Mr. Tessier, am I pronouncing it right? Yeah. Um, was not an isolated incident uh, because, you know, another prominent politician, Shabazz Bhatti, was also killed mm. essentially mm. for the same reason, for advocating an end to the blasphemy laws, right? Absolutely right. Yes, that's right. And and uh, I, I did actually meet, I have met Shabazz Bhatti. I met him in London the year before he uh, was killed, very sadly. Um, but, but it's also interesting that um, back in 1997, a judge was actually um, assassinated when he did hear an appeal. So these judges, they are afraid for their lives because if they do... Um, in, in the eyes of many Muslims, if they do let Asya Bibi off, as it were, from having apparently uh, committed blasphemy, they themselves deserve to be killed, which is exactly the reason that Mumtaz Kadri gave for assassinating his own um, governor, as it were. Let me ask you this question, because this is what's been in the back of my mind for a long time about this case. Um, Ms. Bibi is presumably, uh, you know, an uneducated agricultural worker, what are her prospects if she were freed? Well, that's the difficult thing. A lot of people say that even if she was freed, the mob rule would somehow uh, manage to um, stir up so much trouble that somebody would somehow, um, you know, kill her or, or, you know, they would manage to kind of get rid of her, as it were, because last two weeks ago when her appeal was being held, there was uh, a lot of, um, you could say, sort of storm in Pakistan. Um, 150 Muslim clerics actually signed a petition saying that they wanted her to hang, that she deserved to hang. Uh, there's also um, a, a prominent mosque called the Red Mosque, which is known um, for kind of radical Islamist preaching. And that was kind of very um, outspoken and sort of said, you know, she deserved to die. And anybody who uh, not only, you know, she deserved to die, but anyone involved in, in helping anyone who has been accused of blasphemy. So there really is a lot of um, anti, you know, anti-Asia sentiment in Pakistan uh, amongst the kind of, you know, the vast population. However, I would add that there is a growing sense among, you know, other parts of Pakistan, particularly the more liberal Muslims and secular people that really... You know, she's suffered long enough, and um, really she's only in, in jail because of a legal technicality, which the court has actually said that um, 
basically it said there is something wrong with our law. She's been convicted because of a loophole in our law. And they've actually sent that law. They've actually asked Parliament to look again at the law and amend the law. So there are moves to try and um, actually, you know, recognize that, that there has been a miscarriage of justice in her case. I know that there's been a lot of attention to her case from the international human rights community. Do you think that that's making a difference in any way? To be honest, it's really hard to tell. Um, I think definitely, you know, her case is probably one of the most well-known ones in the world. And certainly, I mean, the Pope has spoken out and asked for her to be freed. And many other people, as you said, have called for her to be released. But I think there is also... Um, a very strong feeling in Pakistan that, you know, they are an Islamic republic and they want to uphold the honor of their prophet. So it is a very difficult one. It's hard to call, to be perfectly honest. Well, I, you know, I continue to urge our listeners to watch and pray. Um, I'm very concerned, whatever the decision is, whether, um, you know, whether there's a life for this young woman. And, uh, you know, I have been concerned that even if she's released, that her days are numbered. Um, you know, short of an exit strategy to get her out of the country and, and resettle her someplace safe. Uh, but certainly, folks, keep your eyes open, keep praying. You know, the change has got to come to Pakistan, we would hope. Our guest today, Julia Bicknell, executive editor of World Watch Monitor, worldwatchmonitor.org. Um, please do follow the case of Asya Bibi, notorious blasphemy conviction in Pakistan. Uh, Julia, thank you so much for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you very much. And as we close, we want to remind our listeners here at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We help those suffering religious discrimination, especially employment discrimination. So check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org, all one word, churchstate.org. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>